Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm the group's resident here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. And so whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by his word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in him. Good morning, my friends. It's good to see you again. Uh, Good to be back with you. If you're watching with us online, great having you join in with us as well in the room here. Um, And so today and next week, we are wrapping up this series we've been working our way through actually at all four of the Zero Collective churches in our network. We've been looking uh, in this new year at the book of Jonah. And we've been talking about what, what God wants to say to us through that. So today and next week, we are in chapter four, the final chapter of the book of Jonah. But before we dive into that uh, this morning, a um, little later today is the Super Bowl. And uh, so, yes, yeah, some of us are excited about that. Super Bowl, 22 guys on the field desperately in need of rest, being watched by millions of people desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> And so uh, I don't know about you, but I'm having a hard time this year since the Lions lost, like getting into it. I'm having a hard time getting excited. In fact, uh, David and I were laughing this past week about this graphic that for me just perfectly describes how I feel about the Super Bowl this year. So this is like a map of the U.S. to show who's rooting for who. You have the Kansas City fans here in the middle. You have the Niner fans over here on the West Coast. And then the gray, everybody else is like, can't they just both lose? Wouldn't that be so great? That's exactly how I feel this year. Like, I wish there was just some, I'm rooting for both teams to lose somehow. I wish there was some scenario where that could happen. Uh, some of you uh, are, are like, you know, I don't even know who's playing. I just hope Taylor Swift wins somehow. <laughs> but, uh, um, and, and, you know, that's true, isn't it? Isn't it true that a lot of times what we do is, you know, we don't just root for one team to win. We also simultaneously root for another team to lose. I mean, if, you, if you're a Michigan fan, you know, you don't just root for Michigan to win. You root for Ohio State to lose any way that they can, right? That's, that's the way it is. And there's nothing wrong with that when it comes to a game. In fact, that's kind of what makes sports fun. You know what I mean? Is that kind of there's a clear winner, there's a clear loser, and we root for that. But the question I, I want to ask us as we move into the text this morning uh, is, is the question, do we root for people to lose in life? There's nothing wrong with that in sports, right? But when it comes to our lives, are there people in your life that you actually root for, for them to lose? Uh, Confession, there are people that I compare myself to. People that I feel, you know, if I just kind of let my mind go down that track, people I feel like I'm somehow in competition with, that I kind of actively root for them to lose. And the worst part, if we're being completely honest, is some of those people are other pastors who are leading other churches and other ministries. And I know that's wrong. I know that's not how we should think, you know, in the kingdom of God, but I struggle with that. Is is there anybody that you sort of actively root for to lose? Whenever we do that, what we're actually doing is we're fixing our happiness to another person's unhappiness. Right? So I, I can't be happy unless I know they're unhappy. And if I find out that they're happy, well, then that makes me unhappy. And the problem with that is, is when we live that way, I, I either live with this constant sense of anger and frustration that it feels like somebody's getting a better deal than me, or I live with this sense of superiority if I'm really rooting for them to lose and I think I'm better than them. 
And, and neither one of those things are the heart of God. I, I tell you that because as we go into Jonah chapter four today, what we see is that Jonah is actively rooting for the Ninevites to lose. I, I mean, he has fixed his happiness to the destruction of the Ninevites. That's what he wants. He wants to see them go down. And if you've been with us throughout the series, you know Jonah is sort of living a second chance. He's gotten a second chance out of the belly of the fish and he's been obedient to God. In Jonah chapter three, he goes to the city of Nineveh where all these people live. You know, his people and the people, the Assyrians, the people of the Ninevites, they were kind of in competition with each other. So he doesn't really want to do it, but he goes and his basic message is repent or in 40 days, God's going to destroy the whole city. It's a great message of grace. And the people actually do it. The Ninevites actually repent. They actually turn back to God and, and, and the people are saved. And you'd think Jonah would be excited about this. You'd think he'd be like, oh, job well done. Great job. And he's miserable. He's absolutely miserable. Let's take a look at this. This is Jonah 4. Uh, we looked at the first couple of verses of this last week as we talked about personal forgiveness. And we're just going to take it a little bit further from there. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very, what? Angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? I love that that's the question that God asked Jonah. He asked him to, to do some self-introspection, to look at himself. Is it, is it right for you to be angry about this? Maybe that's the question God wants to ask each of us today. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And I love this, what Jonah's doing there, you know, as he's making the shelter, he's, he's setting up a place where he can watch, just like we're going to watch the Super Bowl later today. And just, he's hoping to watch and see the Ninevites get nuked. That's what he's hoping. He's hoping somehow God's just going to, you know, take them out because he's so unhappy. There's a couple things in this text I want to draw out for you. Uh, first of all, it says that Jonah, when he realizes that God isn't going to destroy the city, he, he gets very, very angry. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the Hebrew language, much like in our, in our language as well, we have different words for the feeling or the experience of anger. So there are different words that they use. The, the word that's used here when it says Jonah became very angry is the Hebrew word hara. Let me hear you say hara. There you go. That's it. You got to work the phlegm up really good to get it right. Hara is literally what it means is it means to burn. It means to be furious, to be hot. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a white hot anger that comes on right away. Okay, so this is not like a slow kind of feeling of bitterness or frustration, you know, that kind of bubbles beneath the surface for years and years. That's not what we're talking about here. Jonah is boiling. And in fact, I would say the closest word in our English language to describe the word hurrah is our word outrage. That's what Jonah's experiencing here. He's absolutely outraged that God would do this. Literally like, are you kidding me? I get put in the belly of the fish and these people get off scot-free? How is that fair? He's just furiously angry. 
And I would say we live today in an outrage culture. You don't have to look too far to see this, that the point of every media story and everything that we're kind of pitched to today, the point is to try to get us more and more and more outraged at this person or this group of people or, or whatever it is. And so we work familiar with this emotion, aren't we? In our, in our culture today, we're familiar. We have these hurrah flare-ups all the time. When your ex who really wounded you and hurt you gets on Facebook and they start posting about how great their life is now with their new person, hurrah, right? When that teacher who humiliated you gets the award for teacher of the year, hurrah. Or, or when the road construction sign says, lane, close your head. And so you get over in the, that long lane of cars on the right side and some weasel goes all the way down and then tries to force their way in at the last second and some wimpy person lets them in. <laughs> Hurrah! And yes, I know technically they're allowed to do that. Somebody came up and told me that after the last service. I don't care. It still makes me mad. <laughs> We're familiar with this, aren't we? We get outraged all the time. And some, sometimes it's about stupid stuff like that. But for some of us, these represent some of the deepest wounds that we carry. And we live in kind of this perpetual state of outrage. That's where Jonah's at. And these anger flare-ups, these hurrah flare-ups happen whenever I perceive that I'm, being, that I'm basically in a situation where somebody else is getting a better deal than me or God is showing favor or mercy to someone who I wouldn't show favor or mercy to. That, that's when we experience these things. What's really interesting here in the text, especially in the original language, is the way the writer of the book of Jonah is trying to contrast God's anger and Jonah's anger. So we already talked about Jonah's anger is described as hurrah, hot, burning, intense, furious, now, quick, but listen again to how God's anger is described. Jonah says, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. So, so if you're, you're following along there, Jonah is quick to anger and slow to love. God is slow to anger and he's quick to love. That's what we learn about God in Jonah chapter four. He's a God who is slow to anger and he's quick to express love. Uh, which one are you more like? No, no, better question. Which one would your family say you're more like? My, my family would have no problem telling you that there are a lot of times where I am a lot more like Jonah than I am like God. Quick to anger. But I'm slow. It takes me a little bit longer to show forgiveness, to show love, to show mercy. So the question today, where, where I want to go uh, with the time we have together is, what does God want to say to people like you and me and Jonah who, who are struggling with hurrah, this sense of outrage? We're, we're quick to anger. We're slow to extend love. What's actually interesting is we're going to skip to the very last verse in this chapter, and it's the very last verse in the entire story of Jonah, of, of all four chapters of the book of Jonah. What's interesting is the book of Jonah ends on this sort of like cliffhanger. It's this very abrupt, unresolved ending. 
But, but the reason it ends with that, it ends with God responding to Jonah and explaining to Jonah why he's quick to show love and he's slow to, to become angry. He's giving it a reason for that. And it's a reason I think every single one of us wants or needs to hear today. And the entire book of Jonah ends on that statement that God makes because this statement we're about to read is the point of the entire book of Jonah. It's what everything else kind of builds up to. So God, you know, in response to Jonah's anger, the very last verse of the book of Jonah, he says, Jonah, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I love this because we get a picture of God's perspective when he looks at the city. Not just when he looks at the city of Nineveh, when he looks at our city. I love this. God knows exactly, he knows the number. He knows exactly the number of people that are still living in spiritual darkness in the the city of Nineveh. There's 120,000 people plus all the animals. And he cares about each and every one of them. What's amazing about that, and we understand this here because we've talked about this so much, the number that God really cares about is not the number 120,000. The number that God is the most concerned with is the number zero. Because for God, what matters to him is that there would be zero people living in spiritual darkness far away from God. That's what we're all about with the Zero Collective. That's what we're all about with these four churches. We've actually got a fifth church that's, um, that's gonna be joining us here in this next year. And, and we're, we're doing this together in the city of Grand Rapids because we believe the heart of God is that there would be zero people living unchanged for Jesus in our area. This is a great insight into God, into how he views our city. What, what God is saying is literally when God looks at our city, when he looks at Grand Rapids, God doesn't just see all the churches and he doesn't just compare all the churches like we kind of do. Like, oh, you know, these people at this church over here, they have a great kids ministry. Like that's the church with the best kids. This church over here, oh man, their worship, their music, oh, it's, it's the best. It's so good. The preaching over here, it's so good. Oh, you know, you, but you should go over here for their outreach programs. That's not what God does. When God looks at the city of Grand Rapids, he sees the 120,000 people that are still living in spiritual darkness. That's who he's focused on. If the number had been 120, that's how many people he would have cared about. If it was 1.2 million, that's how many he would have cared about. That's what God sees. When he looks at our city, what he's focused on, what he's seen are the lost people, the people who are living in spiritual darkness, who, who are living apart from a relationship with him. So the real big question that kind of the book of Jonah closes on, and it's the, the big question uh, that we're looking at today is, is why doesn't Jonah care about the 120,000? Why? How, why is this guy so hard-hearted at this point in the story, after the fish, after he's been given a second chance, after he's gone and, and actually experienced the people of Nineveh and, and preached to them, how is it that Jonah still, at this point in the story, still does not care about the 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness in the city of Nineveh? Why is that? And what we're, we're seeing here, the problem for Jonah is that Jonah still does not understand how the gospel of grace works. He still hasn't been transformed by it. Even though he's living a second chance, even though he's been given grace, even though his life has been spared and he's submitted himself even to God to go to the Nineveh, he still, even here at the end of the story, he still doesn't get it. He doesn't understand how the gospel of grace works. 
And what this should tell us is that it's possible to grow up in a Christian home. It's, it's possible to grow up going to church all your life and to be living a very good, very moral life and yet still be miserable, still be comparing yourself to other people, concerned about who's getting a better deal than you, living with hurrah, angry, furious about feeling like you have to prove yourself and compete with all these other people and, and, and not experiencing the freedom that comes from the gospel because we still haven't understood it. It's possible to, to be in a church, to be following God, to be doing all the right things and still really not fully understand or have embraced or had your life transformed by the gospel of grace. So the main idea I want you to walk away with today is this idea that the best indicator that we have embraced the gospel in our own lives is our willingness to offer it to our enemies. Let me say that again. The best indicator that we have embraced the gospel is not how many verses of scripture we've memorized. It's not how many church services we've attended or all the good deeds that we've done. The best indicator we've actually embraced the gospel and it's actually transformed our lives is our willingness, our ability to offer it to our enemies, to those people we are rooting to lose. We're just rooting against them in life. And until you can do that, until you've come to that place, you haven't really understood or been transformed by the gospel. And what's amazing is when you fast forward, when you get into the New Testament, on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you see this all throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's one of those things that once you see it, it's like you can't unsee it. You just see it in every verse. You see it everywhere. Well, what's interesting about the New Testament is when you, get, when you go to it, really, we're, we're never really told in the New Testament, hey, you should do this thing because it's the good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You really should. You should be ashamed of yourself if you don't do this. We're not really told to do things in the New Testament because they're like the, the, the rules say so or that's the good or right thing to do. What we're actually told to do, and whenever we're told to do something in the New Testament, we're, it's, we immediately are pointed back to the gospel. We're told to do something because that's what the gospel is. Some examples. When Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about their generosity, they're being stingy, they're refusing to, to share and, and be generous with their wealth. What Paul does not say is he does not say, hey, don't you guys remember the rules about tithing? Don't you guys know that law, you know, the whole thing about the first 10%? Well, why aren't you doing that? Don't you feel ashamed of yourself? That's not what he says. He says, don't you remember the gospel? Jesus, though he was rich, became poor on your behalf so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And you understand that. How could you possibly be anything but generous? At the Jerusalem council, Paul confronts Peter to his face. He says in Galatians 2, I confronted Peter to his face because of his racism. Peter is showing racism and refusing to eat at the same table with the Gentile believers. And so when Peter, or when Paul confronts Peter, uh, he says to him, you know, Peter, don't you know about the no racism rule? Don't you know that? Don't you know we have rules that you can't be a racist? Come on. No, that's not what he says. What he says in Galatians 2 to, when he confronts Peter is he says, Peter, don't you remember the gospel? How could you possibly feel superior to anyone? You are a sinner who's been saved by sheer grace. You've got nothing to boast in but the cross. How could you possibly think that you're better than anyone? In talking to husbands in Ephesians 5, Paul doesn't say, 
Hey, okay, husbands, you guys know the Ten Commandments, right? Do not commit adultery. You know, you shouldn't be looking at porn, you know, all that stuff. That's not what he says. He says to husbands, we're called to love our wives like Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her, sacrificed his life so that she could be made pure and holy. Don't you remember the gospel? Any sort of motivation to do anything, to follow Jesus, to live a life for him in any way, shape, or form is always connected back to the gospel. Oftentimes, we don't know how to offer grace or forgiveness or mercy to other people until we've connected it to our own story and our own need for grace, our own need for mercy and how it's transformed our lives. If, if you have a hurrah problem today, you need the gospel. You need a deeper, fuller understanding and embracing of the gospel. That's the only thing that really does change anyone's life. It's the only thing that can change a human heart, really, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I was 12 years old, our family moved from Indianapolis, where we had lived all my life, to a small town in northern Indiana called Marion, Indiana. And I've shared this before with you, but, but the reason we moved is because for my parents, it represented kind of a fresh start to try again. Uh, my parents' marriage had really deteriorated. Things were not good at home. And so my dad, who had a job, uh, you know, traveling all the time, took a job managing this small credit union in Marion, Indiana. So that, and we moved our family there so that they, so he could be home, all, you know, during the weeknights and everything and be around. And for my parents, it was a chance that like, let's try again. Maybe we can salvage this. So we moved. And I was uprooted from, you know, the school I was at and all the friends I had. As a middle schooler, I suddenly found myself as the new kid in school. And here's what I remember about that time in my life. I have this distinct memory where I, I remember whenever someone would talk to me, I literally could not look them in the eye. Like, like other classmates, if they came up to me, even teachers, if they would talk to me, like I, I would kind of like drop my head. It was noticeable. People made comments about it. I literally just could not look people in the eye. And I look back on that now, and, I, and the, reason that that, the reason that happened and the reason I was feeling like that was because the thing I believed about myself at that age of my life was I just believed I was worthless. You know, because of the things happening at home, the, things, the state of, of things with my family and just being the new kid in a school, not knowing it, for whatever reason, like I believed this lie that I was just worthless. So much to the point where it literally affected me. I could not look people in the eye. For several years, uh, my wife, Carrie, worked as a nurse um, with D.A. Blodgett at a group foster home here in town. And uh, because we have our foster license, very regularly she would build relationships with kids who were in the, in the group home. And she would, you know, invite them over to our house or we, we would spend time uh, with different kids. And I remember there was this one uh, boy, he was a 13-year-old boy, who she had developed a relationship with, who literally on weekends and on uh, holidays and stuff, he had nowhere to go. For no fault of his own, his, uh, he had been removed from his family and uh, they couldn't visit him. Uh, he literally was just there completely by himself in this group home. And so I remember Carrie started saying to me, hey, uh, you know, it'd be great. Like, why don't, why don't I bring him over to our house? Like, we could, we could hang out with him on the weekends. We could even bring him to church with us. Uh, and then 4th of July was coming up, I remember. And she said, you know, for 4th of July, he could come with us. Uh, we, we go every year to a friend's cottage. I look forward to it all year long uh, for, for 4th of July. It's a really great time. And to be honest with you, when she brought it up to me, I, was, I didn't want to. I was like, really, do we have to do that? 
And the, the reason it wasn't anything personal against him, it just, I didn't want some kid, you know, invading on our family time, invading on fishing time and all the other stuff I, I love to do at the cottage and, and different things. So I, can we just not, like, haven't we just done enough? I just did not want to connect with this kid. And she said, well, would you at least be willing to meet him? And I was like, I don't really think so. I don't want to. And she said, well, why don't you pray about that, Pastor Brian? <laughs> Which is what she does. It's not as cute as it sounds, trust me. It's like her little, you know, card she always plays. So I was like, fine, I'll pray about it. So I prayed about it. I was willing, I said, all right, let, you know, I'm willing to meet him. So she brought him over to our house. And when I meet this kid, the very first time I met him, the first thing I notice about him is that he won't look me in the eye. Not just me, my boys, he couldn't look them in the eye. Even Carrie, who he knew, who he had a relationship with, he, he wouldn't look her in the eye. And instantly, just like that, my heart was changed toward this kid. Suddenly, like I didn't have to be talked into hanging out with him. It, was, it wasn't hard at all to include him. It wasn't hard at all to invite him to come with us on 4th of July. It wasn't hard at all to invest in him, to spend time with him, to talk with him, to, to bring him to church with us, which we did multiple times. So suddenly it was like, that was, that was easy. Why? Because when I saw him and I saw what was happening, I could see the same hurt inside of him that was inside of me when I was about his age. Even though our stories are very different, even though he experienced things in his life that I, I've never had to go through, the same lie that I was believing in my head, I could see it as the same lie he was believing in his head. He, this kid isn't rude. This kid isn't ungrateful. Those, that's the way he would come across kind of. He just thinks he's worthless, just like me. And, and really what was happening in that moment is when I met this young man, he reminded me what lost felt like. Have you forgotten what lost felt like? Have you forgotten what worthless felt like? what hopeless felt like, what addicted felt like. Man, I, I can forget about that stuff so quick and my life just very quickly just gets absorbed around myself. God wants to change our hearts what, what happened to me? What, why, when I think back to that 12-year-old kid version of myself that couldn't look you in the eye, why does that seem like it was a different lifetime ago? It was a totally different person, it feels like. It's so far from, removed from who I am today. I've never been like a shy person. But like, what, why does that seem like that was so long and so far away ago? It's because at 14 years old, a couple years after that period of time, the gospel came into my life. That's what changed. We started going to a church I gave my life to Jesus. I got baptized in that church. And what the gospel told me, when I, when I understood it, when I embraced it, the gospel told me that, Brian, you are not worthless. In fact, to Jesus, you are irreplaceable. You're priceless. You're indispensable. You were worth dying for. Do you understand? When you understand that you were worth dying for, that Jesus loved you that much, that he came and he took all your sin on himself so that you could have the life that only he earned because you were so valuable, you were so worth it to him. 
it changes everything when you understand that. It's like if I'm a billionaire and somebody steals $10 from me, what do I do? I don't freak out and call the police and turn the city upside down to try to find that guy who took my $10 from me. I don't do that. If I'm a billionaire and somebody steals $10 from me, I shrug and I move on. Even though that was wrong, even though he shouldn't have stolen the $10 from me, even though that's an injustice, the resolution isn't in getting the $10 back. The resolution is simply looking at the billions that are in my account. That's what we get when we come to Christ. The riches of Jesus Christ are applied to us. His value, his worth, we become so worthy and it transforms everything. There, there is nobody I can't look in the eye today. I don't bow my head to anybody because I know I am a son of the most high God and I was worth dying for. You get that. When you get that, it changes everything. And, and the things that used to, to bother you just don't bother you anymore. It, does, it no longer bothers you that somebody's getting a better deal than you. It, it no longer bothers you when you understand the worth and the value you have in Christ, that you feel like you have to compete with other people, that you feel like you have to prove yourself all the time to these people, that you have to root against these people to lose because your value is somehow contingent on them losing. You stop caring about that stuff and you start becoming bothered by something else. The thing that starts to bother you instead is that there are 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness in the city. That's what starts to bother you because that's the heart of the father. And what he's concerned about begins to become the thing that you're concerned about. A church that doesn't give a rip about the lost people of its community is a church that has not been transformed by the gospel. And my friends, that's not us, is it? We actually did a study this past summer. David, um, I know shared this with you over the summer. Uh, if you, from where you're sitting, your chair where you're sitting at right now, if you draw a five mile circle radius from your chair where you're sitting, there are 53,410 people that in a survey, I think in 2021 said that they are living apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. They acknowledge that. 53,410 people living in spiritual darkness in the city you live in. I, this blew me away. After first service, I shared that. There was a lady here uh, during first service who came up to me at the end uh, to, to talk to me. And the first words out of her mouth, she just said, I'm one of the 53,410 people. <laughs> Have we forgotten what lost feels like? Jesus wants to transform our hearts by setting us free from the need to compare, from the need to constantly be proving ourselves, rooting for others to lose. And he wants to send us out on mission to be a church that cares about the 53,410 lost people all around us. It should bother you that those 53,410 people exist. Why? Because the gospel tells us those people, every single one of them is worth dying for. Why, why should it bother you that right now in Grand Rapids, there are three churches for every one child in the foster care system and they cannot find enough foster families? I mean, why should that bother us? They're not your kids. They're not my kids. It's because what the gospel tells us is that every one of those kids is worth dying for. That's why. 
Janith was up here talking about these mission trips that are about it. Why should we care about kids and, and unsponsored kids and their families in Ukro, our sister community in Ukro, Ethiopia? Why should we care about the pastors and the ministry to the, to the people that are, that are being done in Guatemala? Why should we care about that? Those people are on the other side of the world. Why should they be our concern? It's because the gospel tells us that those people are worth dying for. Every single one of them matters to God. And therefore, they matter to us. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. God says to Jonah, Jonah, there are 120,000 people in the city worth dying for. An unpopular theme of the Bible, and it certainly is the theme of the book of Jonah, is that God over and over again will send people, send someone to reach a group of people who they don't like. See, we don't think God would do that. We think, well, you know, God's only going to send me to people I like and people who are just like me and who have all the same opinions and, and get along with me perfectly. I'm here to tell you, if you detest them, there's a really good chance he's sending you to them. And the, the truest measure of whether you've been transformed the gospel is your willingness to offer the gospel to your enemies. When that happens, when that begins to happen, that's when revival, like we were just singing about a moment ago, that's when that begins to take over a city. That's when that begins to happen. Or even your enemies, it doesn't matter. Because we all have the same need. The greatest need of any human life is Jesus. And so the invitation then today, how do we, how do we allow our hearts to be changed by that so that we could even do that, so that we could even offer the gospel to our enemies? This is the, the main takeaway from today. It's, it's stop looking at them and look at Christ. We've got to stop looking at them, those people we're rooting against. And we've got to look at Christ. Stop looking at who the media wants you to be outraged about. It's, it's an election year. It's only going to get worse. We know this, right? Stop looking at who the world says are your enemies and that you're supposed to hate. Stop looking at those people who you're comparing yourself to who you feel like you're competing with, you're, who you're rooting against, take your gaze off of them and look at Christ. We talked about forgiveness last week. The, the only way you can actually forgive someone is not by looking at them and focusing on them and trying really hard to, to like forgive them. It's by stop looking at them and look at Christ. When you do that, when you look at Christ, you see how he died for you. You, you see how you yourself are worth dying for, that your value is not dependent on them or what they do or don't do. And that's where the power to forgive, that's where the power to show grace, that's where the power to extend the gospel to others actually comes from. It's the only thing that can change a human heart. Stop looking at them, look at Christ. Not just once, but every single day. This has to become a practice every single day. We begin our day by, Jesus, I'm fixing my gaze on you. You transform my heart and help me to live out of that. So can we do that right now? Would you bow with me? So Jesus, right now, we take our gaze off of them. And in this room and, and online, I don't know who them is. Them is someone different to every single one of us. But just collectively right now, Jesus, we take our eyes off of them, off of what they've done, off of what we think is fair or unfair, and we put our gaze on you. Even as we sing and as we respond right now, Jesus, we fix our gaze on you. You're the one that we need, Jesus. 
You're, you're the only one who can change our hearts. You're the only one who can change any human heart. And so we ask you right now, God, to just begin your work in us. Set us free from, from the ways in which we ourselves haven't fully understood the gospel and we've made it about us trying to prove ourselves. God, set us free from that and send us out on mission to be your people, to extend grace even to our enemies. God, show us how to do that. Show us how to live into that so that your kingdom can come and your will can be done here on earth just the same as it is in heaven. We love you. We thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.